Howdy and welcome to the Homes for Hope podcast. My name is Drake Coultry and I'm the Western U.S. representative for Homes for Hope and your host today. If you're not aware, Homes for Hope is a building industry response to global poverty. Since our founding, we have expanded our mission to serve in over 20 countries and have had had the privilege of investing over 1.6 billion, with a B, dollars in the dreams of underserved men and women through microenterprise development. Today on our show, I'm excited to say we have the one, the only, Adam Katz, president of Cradle. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks, Drake. Thanks for having me. Of course. It's uh, so fun to have you today calling in from uh, the the Air- Phoenix, Arizona area. We were just saying some some gloomy weather today. I'm in Dallas. And we've got some gloomy weather as well. Um, but hey, you know, you, you got to have uh, rain to get sunshine. Am I right? You're absolutely right. In fact, we welcome the rain out here. We 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 see it so infrequently. Yeah, yeah, yes and amen. The struggle of being out in Arizona. Um the the okay. beauty that it is. But uh Adam, for those that may not know you or haven't yet heard about Cradle, um can you share a little bit about your building industry experience and what exactly Cradle is? Yeah, sure. I've uh I have sort of a weird and eclectic background. I spent, you know, over 10 years in capital markets and a uh, better part of another decade doing consulting uh, and standing up technology companies. Um, but uh, back when I was uh, doing my undergrad work at Arizona State, uh, I double majored in uh, finance and also in, in architecture. Um, and I've always had an affection for developing real estate. I've now developed over 200 custom homes in the Phoenix Scottsdale area. Uh, and I developed Cradle as a, as a one-stop shop, end-to-end design and cons- consultation services business for custom builders and custom remodelers. Uh, you know, it, it used to be that, uh, you know, it used to be that the only way to get projects done out in the field was through brute force showing up every day, really kind of staying on. To, and it certainly requires daily, you know, uh, uh, project management. But what we do is kind of unique in that we really simulate the entire construction of the house for the purposes of making sure that the builder can communicate with their subcontractors and that they can also communicate with the homeowner. So we provide all this immersive 3D experience and clash and conflict analysis around systems so that the builder really understands what it is that they're going out in the field to build. I love that. Adam, honestly, the first thing that came to mind is we're trying to get a, a, a new deck built in our backyard and I was like I'd love a tool where I'm just like trying to email people call people text people I'm like when are you going to be out here with the rain all those things and so um very practical tool so so kudos to you um but Adam this uh th- this time people do not uh tune in to listen to the Homes for Hope podcast to listen to Drake Coltree they tune in for our amazing guests like yourself and so Adam I kind of just want to tee you up it is January 2024, new year, and I'm curious, someone like you that has your hands in the building industry and in this tech sphere and all these things, um, what is it that you think the building industry should be keeping front of mind right now in 2024? Well, it, it, it's a great question. It's, it's interesting. In the United States, we're, we're kind of laggards here in terms of adoption of technology in the construction space. And, you know, that's, that's good and it's bad. It's bad in that we haven't necessarily gotten some of the efficiencies that maybe uh, other parts of the global, uh, of, of the global workforce are, are benefiting from in the AEC space, uh, which is architecture, engineering, and construction. Um, but there's certainly opportunities to be able to, and right now I'm sort of 
speak my own book because this is exactly what we do. But, you know, we really take a lot of pride in taking two dimensional drafting and drawing and bringing it to life in, in, in 3D tools where we can see all of those systems and the way that they work and the way that they're and the way that uh, certain members are coming together and those connection points are being made so that we understand not just what the plans say, but also what questions the builder has and make sure that we get res that we get those not just resolved mm -hmm. from an informational standpoint, but that, that that's all properly documented um, inside of the plan so that when they're out in the field in six months or a year from now actually executing, uh, they've got an instruction set on, on how to do their work. Yeah, so I'm curious, uh, from the builder standpoint that may be a little more old school, they're not an early adopter. Uh, when, when you have those conversations on tools and resources like this, um, what do you, how do you explain ROI to them and the value of a tool like this for those that may be a hair reluctant? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. The, the, I think the biggest benefit that our builder customers are getting from the tool, uh, is the ability to tackle what we call their their bad oopses. So every builder knows that they have change orders out in the field, and there's the good kind, the kind that everybody agrees to, right? Mm -hmm. That's a, you know, we decided to upgrade this tile, and it's going to be so much more money, and here's the change order, and customer pays, they get what they want, builder gets paid, makes their margin, everybody's happy. And then there's the bad kind. There's the, there's the improvisation or the things that they didn't plan for in the field. And what I find often when I work with builders is, they have a couple of culprits that that are uh, that that are responsible for those bad oopses mm. out in the field, and so we really want to focus in on that and see what information could we be getting those subcontractors so that they can either estimate properly or execute properly in the field in a way that they couldn't before. Yeah, and when you uh, think about it from the customer end. Uh, what do you see as the biggest value add um, for maybe not the builder, but the the client? Because um, correct me if I'm wrong, this is being able to keep tabs on where where the project stands, uh, what if any changes need to be made, timeline changes, things like that. Um, what's the biggest value add that you've kind of received testimonials from customers on tools like this? Uh, to stand out. One, that we're giving builders the ability to uh, have access to information around the plan set in a way that they didn't before. So by way of example, uh, you know, I often find that builders, are, you know, will look at a set of plans when they're getting ready to go plan something out in the field and say, oh, I, you know, I'm missing dimensions here, I'm missing dimensions here. And often they'll call into the architect or the drafts person or the engineer and say, can I get this? And then they're going into a queue and sometimes there's dollars associated with that and sometimes there's not. So having this information model where the builder can literally go in and through a viewer and, and measure things anytime that they want to when they're doing their planning um, really gives them a tremendous, a tremendous leg up. The, the second thing that comes to mind is uh, what I was discussing earlier, which is, um, you know, if we are going after the repeat offenders, meaning that we have people who uh, subcontractors that are in the field and there's a limited number of them that are responsible for creating those bad oopses, looking to try and solve that with design and communication tools and more effective artifacts to put in front of them um, seems to be doing a lot of good in the field in the way of mitigating those those kinds of risks in the field. Yeah, that seems like uh, that saves a lot on the, the bottom line for these builders at the end of the day, because when they have to go back and forth, or uh, I wrote down bad oopses, when there's too many bad oopses, uh, that can really um, 
impact the, the the bottom line for these builders and so i thought that must be uh quite quite the value add as well am i right it, it is i i always like to know what the difference is between their target margins and their actual margins mm -hmm. and what's responsible for for the difference yeah. <laughs> and uh and and that's normally a good place to start so yeah absolutely i love that and so how do you see um tools like this evolving over years to come obviously uh AI has jumped on the scene recently, and I don't know how that impacts you and your sphere. Would love to to know a little bit about that. But um, if you're just dreaming over the next five to ten years, uh, tools like yours, what do they look like to to grow and evolve um, and continue just to help builders out in the future? Yeah, you know, um, it's a another great question, Drake. I I think that for builders, builders build, and some of them are great designers as well. The problem is, is that often the homeowner doesn't know whether they're getting a great builder, a great designer, a great builder, and a great designer. Um, and so having the ability to concept early, to flush out concepts with customers is really important. It's one of the things that I see AI doing today is, you know, we're not quite there yet where you can, you know, reach out, you know, where you can use a tool like Dolly and, and prompt it to, create the, 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 a house that you want. It will give you a visual of, if you said, hey, I want a 3,000 square foot modern house with 12 foot top plates and a flat roof, and it will create something for you. Um, I think in the future, as we actually get better about prompting, and there are application layers sitting in between um, the AI engine and the end user, I could see a world where a customer has the ability to pick a floor plan out of a builder's repository and walk through it and say, oh, I really like that, except I'd like this door to be 16 feet wide instead of 12 feet mm -hmm. wide. And I'd really like to see clear story windows up there. And I really like design interior design package A, but I don't like it with that wallpaper. I like it with this wallpaper. So imagine being able to virtualize the experience, yeah. but as the customer is making selections, actually have it tie out to selection schedules and have it go into a building information model that then goes back out to engineering so that any of the changes where there are structural implications or systems implications could be reworked and re-engineered. I really see a world where a lot of that can be streamlined. You know, we're probably 10 years away from that. Um, but I think if you don't start evaluating that kind of technology now, um, 10 years is going to go by really quickly. And you're going to, I think you could find yourself um, looking like a dinosaur. Yeah. Wow. Looking like a dinosaur. Good. Wise words right there. I, I love how you opened up with uh, builders build. And and, and some uh, do that really well. And some are more from the designer approach. Um but as you were talking, uh, something I'm curious about is even some of the vernacular and the the lingo that that you were using. Um, how do we how do we uh, as respectfully as possible consider me just a buyer? How do we dumb down the building process for buyers sometimes? Because I think that that can be a, they don't they don't know what they don't know. Um, and and so do you see any friction there? Uh, by giving the client these tools, but maybe they don't know the language to speak to use the tool. Do you have to, to dumb down the language enough to where it is easy enough for these clients to be able to use? Well, I, I think that's sort of the, the magic of technology, right? Is that it, it gets more user-friendly and intuitive, mm -hmm. you know, where, yeah. uh, you know, today you can use online platforms to be able to set up a payroll and it steps you through a wizard. Whereas before, you know, before the advent of that, you had to sit around and 
and work your way through a bunch of paperwork, right? And and and, and a bunch of compliance needs. So I think the usability will get better, and and it will step people through decisions that they need to make, so that um, in, in a way where maybe the customer doesn't even understand, um, you know, all of the impacts of the decisions that they're making. They just know that they're making them. And the system is allowing them to make it in such an order, you know, in, in a particular order that allows a certain outcome. Um, I also think on the flip side of technology, there's an opportunity to educate. And I also tell any homeowner that's going into this process, the first question I always ask a new homeowner is, um, have you ever done this before? You know, have you ever done a substantive remodel? Have you ever built a new house before? Um, because if not, there's a really, really big learning curve yeah. to get through. And I, I think that's the point that you're making. Yeah. So... Uh, I, I think it's incumbent upon anybody that's putting technology out to do both focus on the user experience and making it very intuitive while at the same time looking for ways to be able to educate and, and meet people where they are so that they can make informed decisions. Adam, I think, I think that's so good. and such a good, uh, bow to tie there. Um, is that you can give people all the resources and all the tools in the world, but you also need to have that that heart of a teacher and, and someone that is willing to share uh, in the process and guide through the process. And uh, I'm really excited to see uh, 10 years from now, I hope no one's become a dinosaur for what it's worth, but uh, I am excited to see um, what innovations are taking place because just in the past few years, the building industry, um, things have uh in, become so much more innovative, um, I believe. And uh, Adam, you guys over at, at Cradle are part of that, part of that innovation. And, and so I, and I appreciate your patience to even uh, teach as well. We had a conversation before this and uh, you, when we first met, you were explaining what you do. And I was like, interesting. Can you like say that again? Um, and so I uh, appreciate that, that patience to share as well. But um, Adam, we're going to, we're going to toss it up to uh, our boss or my boss, <laughs> Matt Bear up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, for a quick ad, and then we're going to jump to the second half of our podcast. So uh, listeners, we'll be right back. The International Builder Show is the largest gathering of building industry professionals in the world. What an opportunity that presents for us to come together and pray for each other while we're there. Well, this year, for the first time, we're going to do just that. Homes for Hope is hosting the inaugural IBS Prayer Breakfast on the morning of Wednesday, February 28th, from 7.30 to 8.30 a.m. at the Westgate Hotel and Casino in Ballroom D. We're going to comprehensively cover our industry in prayer by praying for builders, suppliers, the trades, consultants, and women in building, and we're super excited about it. Don't miss out on this amazing opportunity to glorify God, network with other like-minded professionals, and pray for the continued success of our industry. Register now as space is limited for this inspiring event. Free breakfast will be provided, and we all know how important finding food is at IBS. The link for more information on the event and to register will be in the show notes. And now... Back to my friend and colleague, Dre Coltree. Okay, listeners, we are back. This is Dre Coltree with the Homes for Hope podcast and Adam Katz, president of Cradle. And so, Adam, this is the aspect, um, the really the segment of the podcast where we get to connect to the work of Homes for Hope. Um, we believe that there's no such thing as a self-made man or woman and that we have all been invested in by someone. And so that's why we partner with the building industry to raise capital that we then distribute as microloans to men and women in underserved countries all around the world so that they can invest in their businesses and slowly but surely rise up out of poverty. And we feel the building industry can relate to this so well because uh, how many builders have you met that didn't have to go get invested in by someone to to start their, their company um, or whatever it may be? And so with that, Adam, um, today, I just want to open up the floor to you and say, hey, 
who invested in you, either personally or professionally, to help get to where you are today? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, God, I've I've had so many mentors, and by the way, I think I mentioned to you earlier that I don't have a particularly traditional view of mentorship. I, you know, mentorship to me isn't necessarily teacher student so much as it's somebody that. Uh, provides you an opportunity to learn, mm-hmm. you know, either learn what to do or learn what not to do. Um, but uh, um, I did have one person in particular, you know, that that really stands out. Uh, his name is Sean Yari. Uh, and I, I first, I moved from New York to Arizona uh, in 1994 to go to school. And um, as a lot of 18 year olds are when they move across the country, I was probably a little lost, lots of enthusiasm, you know, but, but, but a little lost and directionless and, uh, quite frankly, trying to figure out, you know, what I was going to do with my education and where I was going to go. Um, and I had somebody who really provided an interesting model of what was possible for me that contrasted, um, a lot of what I was exposed to as, as kid, you know, he came from a, a, a family that did real estate development. I had never been exposed to that before. Mm-hmm. Um, he had family that, uh, uh, and, and he personally was exposed to everything from, uh, making movies to real estate development, to restaurant development, to, um, rezoning and, um, and, and rehabilitation of areas of Phoenix in particular that weren't really doing too well. Um, and, and so I, I really learned a lot from him just by osmosis, yeah. uh, you know, really having an opportunity to see him execute over the course of a, a four year period. Um, and I just found that to be wildly inspiring mm-hmm. and eye opening. And it really, um, I'm, I'm grateful for the exposure that I got because it really, uh, piqued my curiosity in a lot of different areas that, uh, are now, you know, an important part of my fabric. You know, it's an important, you know, those, those things that I learned with him and that I subsequently went on to learn, serve as really important mental models for the way that I operate today, both from a business perspective uh, and from, uh, uh, you know, from an ethical perspective, from a, um, from a quality of work perspective. Yeah. So Adam, I'm curious, how did, uh, how did you and Sean first meet? Uh, it's actually kind of a funny story. Um, I was, I, I bartended my way through college mm-hmm. and uh, I, Sean actually was one of the founders of a nightclub that I really wanted to work at because I knew that the bartenders there made all kinds of yeah. money. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm only five foot five. All the bartenders there seemed to be like six foot two. They were all Adonises. So uh, there was there was no role for me to play there. So uh, I wound up working at a little bar off campus. But a friend of mine and I did a really, really great job of promoting the place. And we always had you know, lots of college kids going through there. And one day, uh, Sean came in with his partner and said, uh, how do we get all the kids that you guys get in this place mm. into my place? And I said, uh, I can do that for you. Um, but I'd love to be able to bartend your three busiest nights of the week. And, and, and so we came to an agreement and, uh, uh, and that, that, that was how we met. He ultimately gave me a job. I don't, what a uh, master negotiator. I love the boldness you had there to, to do that. That's amazing. And so I'm curious, once you, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, once you got those three nights, those the three busiest nights of the week, um, what are the things that you remember from Sean? What are the, maybe the, the phrases or the life lessons or the business lessons that you learned from him uh, working alongside him? <clears throat> uh, there, there were a lot, 
you know, but Sean, it was a, Sean's a much more shrewd negotiator than, than, than I'll ever be. Um, but the two most important words he wanted me to know were too much, no matter what somebody was offering me the first time it was too much. And, uh, because no matter where they were coming from, there was always an opportunity to kind of, to, to, to haggle them a little lower. Um, quite frankly, that's actually not something that I incorporate into my, into my particular repertoire today. Um, but, uh, you know, the message was, was clear, which was, uh, you know, fair price Mm -hmm. for, for, for fair value. And, um, you know, and, and I have my own methods for determining that today, but, uh, it was a good starting point. Adam now is able to use a little bit more discernment. He doesn't have to soak in everything, um, but but that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I think that I, I think that that's an important part of mentorship yeah. is watching somebody operate and saying, you know, I, I, I could see how I could benefit from that, um, but also sort of contrasting that with your own style and saying that doesn't necessarily fit me, uh, you know, very well. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, across the spectrum of mentors, you know, the, that I've had, I can't think of any one of them where I'd, I I would want to emulate every single thing that they've ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a tendency to, to to cherry pick the things that I like about about the people that that I admire. Yeah, and so with that, Adam, I'm I'm curious, kind of pivoting from Sean a little bit. You opened up, and you you even said earlier, which I appreciated. Um, I I don't have this traditional look of mentorship or what it looks like to be invested in, and and you have a, a wonderful perspective of everyone. Uh, can be investing in me all at once, both positively and negatively. And so I'm curious, um, what kind of mindset do you walk around with, Adam, if I'm being completely honest? Um, like, how are you learning uh, from just the, the men and women that you come in contact with on a daily basis, just personally in life? And then um, how are you also carrying that into the professional world and just being this sponge that can learn either positively or negatively? Um, I'm just curious, what is that I hope this isn't too vague of a question, but what is that mindset for you and how have you built that out? It's a pretty vague question, but I'm going to do my best to answer it anyway, Drake. So, so my wife and I have this philosophy that, you know, we're, we're big yogis. We're, we're very into mindfulness, um, meditation, and we have this philosophy that we've called our palms up philosophy, which is, you know, being in a posture to receive the gifts that the universe is trying to give you. And so my contention is the universe is trying to educate you all the time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) every day, all day long. You know, you can either uh, lean into those gifts and explore that and be curious about it. And, um, and I think good things come from, from curiosity. So, uh, you know, I like to think that my posture is one of open-mindedness and, um, a desire to learn from other people and a desire to apply the mental models that I've acquired to the problem and uh, whatever that problem may be. Yeah. Um, and, and I would just put a cherry on top by saying, I, I, I'm not just saying this to say it. Uh, I really, really believe in collaboration. Mm-hmm. It takes over a hundred parties, you know, to come together and make a house work. And at the end of the day, the homeowners are only going to remember the one or two that, that, that weren't pulling their weight. Mm-hmm. So it really truly takes a village um, and, and, uh, I think that now more than ever technology allows us to collaborate in a way that we couldn't before. Yeah. Adam, you did a, a wonderful job at answering a horribly vague question. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> last question I did not prepare you for, and I think, I think you're going to knock it out of the park, but we'll see. I read in your bio, sorry, I saw the grimace. I read in your bio that you play hockey. Is this true? I do. Okay. 
I do. What yeah. is, is, is it ice hockey or roller hockey? Ice hockey, okay. which is weird because I'm in the middle of the desert. There's I, so I many interesting. That that it's much. not weird. It's interesting. Um, Adam, tell me what has playing ice hockey as a grown man taught you? Because like, I feel like I, I am not coordinated enough just to go ice skating, let alone to hit a puck into a net. So like you have to be learning things on the regular playing ice hockey. Well, uh, yeah, it's, it's taught me a few things. It's taught me that the older I get, the better I was. Yeah, and and it, it's, um, but I, when I first came out here to go to school, I actually played ice hockey for ASU and hockey has been a big part of my life. And, uh, and I, I enjoy the community out here very much. You, you wouldn't think that, uh, that Arizona has got a lot of hockey going on, but West coast hockey is actually getting, getting, getting pretty big. And, Arizona State's team is now Division One NCAA and and, and their competitors. Um, uh, I I it's not so much what I find interesting, but what I find other people find interesting about hockey players is is that it, it's a gentleman's sport. You 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 wouldn't you, you wouldn't expect that from a bunch of people who you think of having teeth missing in their mouth and going out and fighting, but. Uh, hockey's truly a gentleman's sport. If you ever have an opportunity to be in, inside the, uh, of a locker room, you're going to find uh, deeply thoughtful, you know, well-educated, um, uh, you know, really, really versatile individuals. And, um, you know, I, I, don't, I, I would imagine that's probably true of a lot of people who have played sports at a competitive level. Um, but, but hockey is certainly no exception to that. So when I tell people that hockey is a gentleman's sport, people have a tendency to look at me sideways and, uh, but I think anytime you, you you meet a lot of those guys that go out and, and still play, yeah. uh, you'll 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 see what I mean. Well, two things for what it's worth, listeners. I know you can't see Adam, but he has all his teeth, so he must be a great hockey player, not getting <laughs> hit too much. Um, and, They're not all mine. <laughs> and secondly, uh, I did once hear from a Zimbabwean pastor that rugby is a gentleman's sport, and so I think I'm hearing like this rough and tumble uh, atmosphere is truly just a bunch of gentlemen out there, and so I love to hear that. And now you know. I know. Well, Adam, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It was a pleasure to kind of hear what it is that you think the building industry should be keeping in front of mind right now, as well as uh, really the story of um, the countless men and women that have invested in you, but specifically highlighting Sean today. Um, So listeners, I hope you enjoyed listening to the Homes for Hope podcast and you found it as insightful as I did and that you are encouraged to invest in those around you. If you're interested in learning more about Adam or Cradle, be sure to check out the link uh, in the show notes. And until next time, this has been the Homes for Hope podcast. Mm -hmm.